Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy. I'm pleased to bring to you uh, Genesis, Aliyah number 7, the seventh and final section of the Sidra of Bereshit. In the seventh Aliyah, we continue with the details of Adam's lineage through Shait, now in its eighth generation. If you remember, Shait was Adam's third son after the death of Hevel and the exile of Cain. And Methuselah, yes, this is the famous Methuselah, the longest lived person in the Bible lived 187 years and begat Lemach. And Methuselah, or Methuselah, lived for 782 years after begetting Lemach, and he begat sons and daughters. And the entire lifespan of Methuselah was 969 years. Note, as I mentioned in the last Aliyah, the bucking of the downward trend of having kids younger and younger, which was happening until Hanukkah's time. Instead, here, Methuselah waits 187 years before having his primary child, his first child, which I proposed in last, in the previous section, that he did so because the world had become so corrupt that there was, for any parent, a feeling of hopelessness in continuing that is a desire not to have children to bring them into such a hopelessly corrupt world. The rabbis, by the way, considered Methuselah, like his father Hanoch, to be a fairly righteous fellow who was in contrast with the state of society at large and therefore would have been um, horrified by what was going around, on around him. And Lemach, whose name is identical to the final full generation of the, the last of uh, Cain's descendants, we're not in Cain's lineage here, of course, we're in Shade's lineage, but as I mentioned, a lot of the names in both are the same, since they were probably looking at each other and competing with one, one another, but anyway, let's go back to his story. He lived 82 years before begetting his son, and he called his name Noach, that is the son's name Noach, saying, quote, this one will bring us comfort, or perhaps this one will alleviate us from our deeds and from the toil of our hands, from the land that God has cursed. Now, a name does not need to exactly match the adage from which it is taken or what it is described. For instance, the prophet Shmuel is named Shmuel, even though Chana says, Ki me Hashem which means his name should have been Shaul. Therefore, again, the name does not have to match the naming exactly. And therefore, it's not entirely clear here whether his name is based on the word Lanuach, to alleviate, or linachem, with the dropping of the mem, which means to comfort it. So I translate it both ways. More interesting than the name, I think, is that Lemach doesn't mention Cain's sins. He's referring, when he says, He's referring to Adam's sins, the ones that God gave to Adam in, in, in chapter 3 when Adam ate from the tree. It said there, 
you are cursed from the land, uh, and because of, uh, or the land is cursed because of you, and you will eat from it only by uh, working very hard for the rest of your life. Rashi says that what Noah introduced was agricultural tools, which means Adam curse still applied. He couldn't undo that, but he was able to introduce weeding and plowing and all kinds of other things, which before then were done by hand. Um, according to this, Noah, again, Noah doesn't remove the curse as much as he just shows people how to move around it. On the other hand, if the, if we, if we say that, that Noah was trying to undoer was destined to undo Adam's punishment, and Adam's punishment was the removal from Garden of Eden, then perhaps Noah was actually meant to return the world to the utopian state after the flood, once all evil had been destroyed. The only problem is, as we'll see, once uh, once he gets out of the ark, his son Ham and his grandson Canaan essentially sin right away, which again we'll see in the next Sidra and Sidrat Noah. So maybe the goal was to put them back in Garden of Eden, but it just didn't work out that way. Or perhaps, um, if we want to take a middle approach, is that the man, the land was made incredibly unworkable after Adam's punishment and Cain's punishment. And after the flood, while God didn't turn things back to their uh, pre, you know, their garden utopian state, he made the land a little bit more giving, a little bit more manageable so people didn't have to suffer quite as much um, in thanks or in, you know, in, in, in positive payment for the fact that Noah saved at least part of the world. And Lemach lived for 595 years after beginning Noah, and he begat sons and daughters, and the entire lifespan of Lemach was 777 years. That's 777, and he died. Now, the number of years that he lived, 777, recalls the number 7 and the number 77. The first number being the uh, punishment that was geared for Cain. Your punishment will be Shivatayim, which meant in order of seven. And then if you remember when Lemach, not this Lemach, this, the, 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 from the lineage of Shade, but the Lemach from the lineage of Cain um, accidentally killed somebody or killed somebody, he said that this sin will be 77. So if you put all those things together, we get three sevens. And and I think that the number is indicative. I don't think that it's just a coincidence. It could be that God is trying to say that there is a sense of impending doom, as if this lineage is now going to be wiped out just like the other lineage was because of its sins, if it were not for the fact that Noah's righteousness will save at least a small part of it. Um, this is possible what the number 777 means. However, I, I would caution um, over-reading into it. That is, sure, Lamach's 777 years and Chanoch's 365 years are very interesting numbers. However, these numbers are always, A, very hard to read, and B, people are always misreading them, I think. They're very easy to misread. And therefore, you know, you could take a few guesses at it, but I wouldn't take it uh, too far. Vayihi Noach ben Chamesh me'ot shana vayolid Noach et Shem et Cham ve'et Yachin. And Noach was 500 years old when he gave birth to Shem, to Cham, and to Yafet. Now, Noah really 
waited a long time before having children. And here, Rashi quotes an Agadah that is similar to um, the despair about having children that I alluded to before. But where I alluded to the idea that the parents wouldn't didn't want to have children because they were afraid of what might be, the Agadah says, the Rabbinic Midrash says, that it was God that prevented Noah from having children since either they would be corrupted by the evil around them and become evil, so what's the point? Or, and then Noah would have to suffer their death as well, or they would have to, they would suffer and die because they were not evil, but because they were surrounded by evil people. Um, I think even though the Midrash is focusing on God's will of preventing Noah from having children, I think the psychology, again, there's a difference between the literal read of the Midrash, which I think is is not a wise choice, and what the Midrash is sort of indicating, and I think what it's indicating is that human beings inherently feel, I mean, you could say it's God-inspired, but human beings, when they're in this terrible situation, they really think twice about bringing children into the world. This happened actually quite a bit during the height of nuclear tensions in the Cold War between Russia and, and, and America, where people really thought the bomb could be dropped at any minute, and a lot of people were saying, you know, I'm not going to bring a children into this world who's going to only survive long enough to perish with the rest of the world, even though there's no fault of their own. And I think that's a little bit of what's going on here. And now we leave off from Noah, and we're going on to what appears to be a new sin um, and a new group of sinners that really doesn't relate to Noah, or at least so it seems. And it was as mankind became numerous on the face of the land and had daughters born to them, which triggers, apparently these, the fact that there are a lot of daughters being uh, born, triggers the sin which now follows. And the Bnei HaElohim saw the daughters of mankind that they were good, which apparently means pretty or desirable, and they took for themselves wives from amongst all that they had selected. I'm trying to translate that as literally as possible, and you'll see why shortly. So we have a sin, this taking of the daughters, this selection of the daughters, and we have sinners, these Bnei Elohim. The only problem is we don't know who the sinners are, and we don't know exactly what their sin was. So first let's deal with the sinner. The simplest translation of Bnei Elohim and how it's used in the book of Eov is angels. That is, the sinners were angels. But most commentaries, for reasons which I'll explain shortly, translate Bnei Elohim not as angels, but as the sons of rulers. Since the word Elohim, while it can mean God, it could also mean judges or rulers in a non-supernatural sense. Therefore, some see this whole thing as an issue of class warfare and class control. And they say that the sin of these people, these children of rulers, these aristocracy, these powerful powerful section of humanity, they use their power to enslave the daughters of Adam. And that, and that would mean the non-powerful, the, the commoners, the hoi polloi. And they forced the hoi polloi into giving them whichever daughters that they wanted, 
meaning they took whoever they wanted for marriage and they really forced the upper classes, the ruling classes, essentially forced their will to, uh, upon the lower classes to satisfy all their needs. The Ramban says that the sin of taking the woman means rape and pillage. And in fact, he says that it's the same as the sin of the flood, which means we haven't really taken a detour. We're talking about, in fact, the sin of the flood, which will be described more in detail in the next chapter. Rashi says... Uh, takes it a step farther. He says the sin is bestiality, not only rape, but bestiality. Rashi essentially throws the book at these B'nai Elohim, uh, and also to some degree, uh, ties their sin to the sin of the people of the flood who will be destroyed, as we'll see in the next Sidra. However, Rashi also hints to a different identity for these sinners. Not an aristocracy or a ruling class, but to something else. And by pointing out that something else, which I'll get to in a second, he opens up a huge can of worms. And therefore, Rashi only hints to the other possible identity of B'nai Elohim, that is, the angels, using the most vague of languages. And this is what he says following his description uh, that it is the sons of rulers. He says in his second opinion, Davar Acher, B'nai Elohim, Heim Sarim HaHolchim B'Shlichuto Shomakom. The B'nai Elohim are officers that go about on the errands of God. This is a very indirect way of saying that B'nai Elohim means angels. That word Sarim is used in Daniel when Daniel is describing the angels who, who visit him. Rashi, the question is, why is Rashi being so cautious? Why is he beating around the bush? And why is he really giving two opinions where the second opinion is diametrically opposed to the first opinion? Either we're dealing with supernatural crime, or we're dealing with human crime, and they're really not you can't really combine the two together. They're really apples and oranges. So it's, it becomes clear why Rashi is so cautious when we realize that the great sage Rav Shimon Bar Yochai, a sage of the Mishnah, and of the, who we read about in the Mishnah and the Talmud, essentially cursed anyone who tries to translate B'nai Elohim in this section as supernatural in any way. And the reason why he curses anyone who says the B'nai Elohim are supernatural is as follows. In late Second Temple times, there arose fringe mystical sects of Judaism, like the ones who uh, who wrote partially and stored partially the scrolls that we found in the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran. And they centered a lot of their mystical theology on on Midrashic or Agadic literature, on legendary literature, which grew up around these very vague passages. Specifically, they based a lot of their theology, their mystical theology, on a book called the Book of Enoch, who, if you remember from the previous Aliyah, Enoch was the one who walked with God, and he was taken early by God, and the Book of Enoch assumes that he was taken up into heaven to watch about how certain angels rebelled against God, and they were cast down to earth, and there they wreaked havoc on community, uh, on humanity. I mean, according to that book, these rebellious angels were the cause of all sin, including vampirism. They were vampires, and they, they taught man sorcery, and how to make potions, and they, they raped indiscriminately. You name the sin, and it was introduced by, to mankind by these fallen angels, by these B'nai Elohim. Their cohabitation with these human women, according to the Book of Enoch, produced offspring that were thousands of feet tall. Now we'll see, there are giants going on around here, but in the Book of Enoch, they're thousands of feet tall, and they consume every last piece of vegetation on the earth, till there's no food left, and there was mass starvation and death. Now, in my opinion... 
the book of Enoch was originally written as Agadah. And as I've said before in these lessons, Agadah is not meant to be taken literally. But the message it's trying to get, the moral message, is is what the author is trying to, to, to get across. However, even as a moral, that is, if we just want to look at the moral of the story and assume that the author did, never wanted us to take it literally, the moral of the story is not a healthy moral. There are major theological problems with the book of Enoch. Besides the fact that there's fallen angels, which we don't have to take literally, but it assumes that A, angels can have their own free will and rebel against God, which is antithetical to the idea of an, um, of an omnipotent God. Second, it argues that man is not responsible for his own sin. It essentially says that the devil made man do it, and therefore it alleviates man from his sin if you say that, oh, he was born that way, he had no choice, there were external forces working on him to be evil. And even more problematic to the rabbis of the mission of the Talmud, forgetting about the problematic theology in the book of Enoch, and the reason why Shimon Bar Yochai said that anybody was cursed if they understand this story about the B'nai Elohim and Bereshit as what was being described in the book of Enoch, is that the book of Enoch and the mystical theology in that book of the fallen angels was taken very literally by these fringe sects and eventually became the cause celeb of the early Christians. The idea of fallen angels, an angel called Lucifer that would lead man astray and cause their, cause them to be, to fall and to be corrupted. That is something which really early Christians took on and they didn't make it up themselves. They got it from these mystical, very fringe group of Jews that were really outcast from the mainstream and really living in caves in, in Qumran and, and, and taking all this mystical literature very seriously. So mainstream Judaism rejects out of hand any interpretation of our passages which can lead one near this theology which means the Rashbi Rosh, is afraid that if we read these B'nai Elohim as supernatural then we'll come to say oh then the book of Enoch is probably right and maybe early Christianity is probably right the only problem is Rashi can't ignore the possibility that the B'nai Elohim were supernatural since the Torah is about to describe these Nephilim, we'll see, who are called the Fallen Ones, and we find out in the book of Bamidbar, in, 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 in the book of uh, Numbers, that the Nephilim, uh, the children, were giants. So the question is, how do you get giant children if you don't have supernatural parents? So therefore, Rashi can't ignore the idea that these B'nai Elohim are supernatural. On the other hand, however, if you do assume that they're supernatural, then the next verse makes no sense whatsoever. Why? Because in the next verse, it's mankind that's punished. It's mankind that God gets upset at and that he takes away their long life. So why would God punish mankind if mankind are the victims and not the sinners? Man should punish the angels, as he does in the book of Enoch. So you're kind of stuck either way. If you say they're supernatural, then why does man getting punished? And, and by the way, since when can an angel rebel against God? But if you say that they're men, how do you wind up with giant children? So I think there's a solution, a really cool solution. And if we look at a, a, take another look closely at the sin, word for word, we'll see that it's described as follows. And they took for themselves wives from all that they had previously selected. That doesn't mean they took all, all, whoever they wanted, like rape or pillage, as, as other commentators say. At least I don't think that's what it means. It means literally that they sub-selected women, from those that they had previously selected. 
And Ibn Ezra explains it like this. He says that these human lords, and he says they're not angels, they are these aristocracy, these ruling classes, these Bnei Elohim were masters of astrology. They were learned men. And what they did was they bred men and women who had shared astrological signs. Let's say you were under the sign of the bulls, you were stubborn. So they would breed uh, a woman of that sign with a man of that sign, and then every successive generation, they would breed and breed generation to generation until they would wind up with people that had this magnified capability of what was ever controlled by this astrological sign. And lest you think that this is way too far out, we don't believe in astrology at all, or we probably don't believe in astrology, and I would agree with you. But the Chizkuni takes another commentator, the Chizkuni takes the, the, the Ebenezer's idea, and he puts it in a far more scientific terms, which is this. These lords, these masters, bred by force the strongest and biggest and choicest men, and then they took from the hoi polloi, from the masses, from mankind without power, they took the strongest and biggest and choicest women, and therefore their children were successively bigger and stronger, and they bred them over and over, generation after generation, but quickly, not waiting a long time to have kids, but every 20 years, let's say, they would breed another one, and they would take the biggest men and the biggest women, and they would breed them and breed them and breed them, and then what you wind up with are these giants compared to average people. Now remember, by the way, when we talk about giants, there are midrashim that describe Og as being a thousand feet tall. But but the book of Devarim describes him very clearly as being exactly 11 and a half feet tall, maybe 12 feet tall. Take a look in chapter 2, and you'll see the size of his bed. The size of his bed is about 13 feet, which puts him at about 11 and a half feet tall. And let's take Goliath, one of the most famous giants of all. He was only 8 and a half feet tall. An ama, if an ama is 1 and a half feet, then essentially he's 8 and a half feet tall, and that's... Okay, now, 8 and a half feet tall is pretty huge, but it's not unheard of. And Og's 11 and a half feet tall is pretty way out there. But I would suspect that in our brave new world that we are similarly com- that we are soon coming into in our not too distant future, that 11 and a half feet will not be so biologically impossible. We're really getting quite good at the whole gene splicing uh, and, and, uh, and eugenics uh, idea. So I have to tell you, when I read the Chizkuni for the first time, I assumed the Chizkuni lived after the time of Greg Mendel, who was, uh, if you remember, the father of genetics, who, who did all those experiments with beans and figured out how to breed certain characteristics true. What I discovered was that Chizkuni lived in the 14th century, way before any of this scientific knowledge, which means that he simply looked, he, he was probably influenced by Eben Ezra's read of the text, and he looked at the, the text itself, this idea of, of selections inside selections, and he said to himself, this is a master race being bred by those in control of the breeding process. These, according to Chizkuni, these masters of the human race, these Bnei Elohim, use their extended lab- lifetimes, the fact that they live for hundreds and hundreds of years, to create essentially an uber race. Essentially what they were trying to do was to recreate man in their own image. Rather than in God's image, they wanted to recreate man in their own image. And if this is correct, if my interpretation is correct, 
based on, I think, what the Chizkuni is saying, then the punishment that comes in the next verse fits the crime exactly, which means he took away their long lives, he took away their ability to experiment and to force breed man. And the Lord said, My spirit will no longer be sheathed in man forever. Yadon comes to the word Danan, which means... Uh, uh, to like a sheath that you put a sword into. Continuing with the verse, I'm not going to do it because he is flesh. He is ultimately only flesh or also flesh. But what will be is that his lifetime will be only 120 years. I think that this means that God removes some of his essence from human beings which had caused them to live such a long time because the container that man was, this physical container, was an inappropriate container for the for the kind of extended life that God's presence or spirit would ultimately give and it was bad because of their potential for misusing that long life and therefore God essentially removes a part of himself from man and limits man's life to 120 years solving the problem of a man living a long time and breeding generation after generation after generation unfortunately enough of this breeding was done that there is an after effect for for the sin Difficult pasuk, but I think it means something like this: the nifilim, the falling ones, who we meet later in Sefer Devarim, Sefer Bimidbar, and Sefer Devarim as the ones producing the giants. They were in the land in those days, and even after then, which I'll get back to in a second, as a result of the cohabitation between the Bnei Elohim and the women of mankind, or as I described, the hoi polloi, the masses, and their birthing for them, these were the mighty ones from days of old, the men of fame, that is, these children of this of this uh, product of the Bnei Elohim uh, breeding the Benot Adam, or breeding through the Benot Adam, caused these children who were the, the men of fame in days of old. And I think what's happening is God, through Moshe, is describing where the giants, and again, the Israelites encounter the giants in Hebron and in other places during their conquest of Israel. So God, through Moshe, is telling him this is where it came from. And it's quite clear, therefore, that not everybody except for Noah died in the flood. There must have been more survivors. And I think that's the meaning of the word, and also after them. You see, if they're born before the flood and we meet their descendants after the flood in the time of Israel, then some of them must have survived. Apparently these giants, these mighty warriors, found some means to survive the flood, albeit not in great numbers. But when you're that big and powerful, who really cares whether you have great numbers? Now, there's a a beautiful Agadic literature, a Midrash, which describes the greatest of these giants, Og, that person, that that uh, that primary giant who I spoke about before, hanging on to Noah's Ark like you hang on to the back of a car, tailgating a ride. And as I mentioned many times, the Midrash is not supposed to be taken literally. But the message is that the, the Midrash is trying to say is first of all, it's trying to explain how it is that Og's descendants and the other uh, the Bnei Elohim's descendants show up later in the picture if they all die out during the flood. But the more important message is that apparently these super race, 
this Uber race, they saw what Noah was doing. They were not completely, they weren't caught completely flat-footed. And when the flood came, some of them managed to survive. And now the story moves on to the corruption that existed in the earth. And as I said, uh, the Ramban and Rashi see the whole sin, not as I described it at all, with this idea of breeding. For them, it was all about rape and pillage, and therefore, this is just a continuation of the of the sin of the flood, which we're going to get to, back to right now. I think that the B'nai Elohim sin was different. It was this breeding of a super race. And now we get back to the other sins. After God takes care of that problem, we get back to probably the more serious sin, which is that mankind himself, all of those hoi polloi, were themselves corrupted beyond redemption. Um, Vayar Adonai ki rabah ra'at ha'adam ba'aretz v'chol yeter machshavot libo rak rak kol uh, and the Lord saw that there was a lot of evil done by mankind on the earth. Now I'm describing Yetzer Machshavot Libo not as that man wanted to do only evil on the earth, as if man is born inherently evil, but the word Yetzer means to create and Machshavot means to plan, which means not that they're inherently evil, but that they're doing evil things, and that that evil was snowballing and snowballing until rak rak kolayom, until there was nothing but evil being done and thought about all day. Vayinach, or, or every day. Vayinachem Adonai ki asat adam ba'aretz, vayit atzev alibo, and the Lord regretted that he had created man, and his heart became hardened. Now, I'm not going to go into the difficult theological issues of anthropopathism, which is, does God feel things like man feel things? Does he really become angry? Does he really become sad? How could he really regret? I'm going to avoid those bigger issues right now, and I'll just say that essentially God is trying to describe the process that he was going through to us, and since we're limited to human terms and human emotions, that's how God is describing himself. And the Lord said, I will wipe out man whom I created from the face of the land, for man, that is including man, including animals, including creepy crawlies, which I think are invertebrates, and to the birds of the skies, indeed I regret having created any of them. However, or but, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So ends the Sidra of Breshit. Sidrat Noach, Parshat Noach, will continue this narrative and we will be told what happened as a result of all this evil being done in the world and we will find out Noach's role in saving some small bit of it, even though it really is only a tiny bit of it.